Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. We are back with part two of Unearths in July because we have so many unearthed things now that we have grown to a second installment in July instead of just the one installment that we previously grew to. Soon it will just be a year's worth of unearths. (laughs) (laughs) We have people sometimes who are like, what if you did a whole podcast that was like your new unearthed podcast? And I'm like, that is an intriguing idea. But this one is part of our whole complex production system to make sure we always have new episodes. Yeah. So this time, we've got some favorites, including the exhumations and the shipwrecks and the things that, you know, in theory are edible, but you shouldn't eat 2,000-year-old food. I don't know. We could be missing out on exactly where the flavor is. (laughs) Don't eat 2,000-year-old food. I'm just making a joke. Uh, Last time, we ended with a set of discoveries that were all about how mobile people have been, going back thousands of years. And this time, we're starting off with some discoveries that are still about where people have lived and moved, but not quite on a global scale. First, researchers at the University of New Brunswick are trying to map the canoe routes that have been used by the area's First Nations peoples, particularly the Wabanaki Confederacy. These canoe routes date back thousands of years, and knowledge of some of them has been preserved through the community's oral histories. Botanist and cartographer William Francis Ganong also documented some of these early in the early 20th century, but at this point, some of them, or knowledge of exactly where they are, has been lost. Multiple teams of researchers are working on this. Some of the waterways would have been accessible only at certain times of the year, based on varying water levels. So one team at the University of New Brunswick is cross-referencing information about water levels with archaeological sites to try to reconstruct the travel routes. A PhD candidate from the College of William and Mary in Virginia is studying the languages spoken by the people who use these waterways to try to find patterns in how those languages shifted and spread. In other news, a grad student from the University of New Mexico uncovered a map at the Bibliothèque Nationale de France, which was drawn by Tune of the Aricara tribe for Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. Tune had joined the expedition with the hope of negotiating a peace between his tribe, the Aricara, and another, the Mandan. This map has been described as the, quote, best preserved of the Native American maps drawn for Lewis and Clark. Historian Clay Jenkinson also said of the find, quote, this map deepens our understanding of how dependent Lewis and Clark were on Native American geographers. We tend to think that they were traveling blind into terra incognita. This is simply not true. Tunay's map lifts the expedition's encounter with the Arikara to new prominence, and it proves that individuals like Tunay were as important to the success of the expedition as, say, Sacagawea. The last one in this set is from a slightly different angle, but it's still about moving and living places. Archaeologists from the University of Exeter have found the remains of geoglyphs in fortified villages in parts of the Amazon rainforest that were previously believed, at least among Western archaeologists, to have been uninhabited. 
This runs alongside discoveries we have talked about in previous episodes of Unearthed, where archaeologists and botanists realized that the so-called pristine and untouched rainforest had actually been deliberately shaped centuries ago through forestry and intentional cultivation. In this case, the find involves evidence for thousands of villages that continually existed from about 1250 to 1500, in places that were previously believed to have been uninhabited for virtually all of their history. And now we've gotten to the shipwrecks. Uh, A team from the Witta Pirate Museum say they may have found a leg bone belonging to the Witta's captain, Pirate Black Sam Bellamy. They think that it's Bellamy's leg bone because they found it in a fused mass of sand near what is believed to be Bellamy's pistol in the vicinity of the wreck of the Witta. Researchers at the University of New Haven are going to try to test the DNA and compare it to the descendants of one of Bellamy's siblings, which will definitely be more conclusive than we found it near the pistol. (laughs) Researchers at Mexico's National Institute of Anthropology and History announced that they had found the remains of two ships and a sunken lighthouse off the Yucatan Peninsula in January. One of the ships is an 18th century Dutch warship, and the other is a British steamer dating back to the 19th century. The Dutch warship, which was partially covered in coral, was one of two mentioned in a 1722 letter from Antonio de Corterre, but they're not sure which of the two it is. Seemed a little weird to me that they had found a sunken lighthouse near some shipwrecks, since the purpose of a lighthouse is to try to prevent the shipwrecks This lighthouse probably toppled into the ocean during a storm. The National Museum of the Great Lakes and the Cleveland Underwater Explorers announced the discovery of the wreck of the Margaret Olwell in March. The Margaret Olwell sank in Lake Erie during a nor'easter in 1899. Eight people were killed in that wreck, including the captain and his family. Some folks who were out just for a day at the beach in Florida also stumbled onto a chunk of an 18th century shipwreck in March. This find is described as 47 and a half feet long and overall very well-preserved, with Roman numerals and other markings still visible on the hull. When we say very well-preserved, it's like uh, the keel and sort of ribs of the ship are what's there, and those bits of it are very well-preserved. No word yet, though, on what this ship might have been. In 2015, the search for Malaysia Airlines flight MH370 found two shipwrecks in the Indian Ocean. Both were 19th century sailing ships that were spotted during sonar searches of the seafloor. This year, researchers announced that they had identified which ships these probably were. One was probably the brig W. Gordon or the bark Magdala. Either way, it probably sank after a coal explosion. The other was probably the bark West Ridge, which disappeared while sailing from England to India in 1883. And now we have something we joked that we are going to have to do, that now we actually do find ourselves having to do, which is a whole bunch of stuff that was found by Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen and the crew of the RV Petrel, in addition to the USS Indianapolis that we did in a whole other episode during Unearthed season last year. First, one from the end of last year, the USS Ward, which fired the first American shot during World War II from off of Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. The Ward fired on and hit a Japanese submarine that was en route to Pearl Harbor. Three years to the day later, the Ward was hit by a kamikaze aircraft off of the Philippines. Second, 
They found the wreck of the USS Lexington, which was an aircraft carrier that was scuttled during World War II. The ship and 35 aircraft went down at the end of the Battle of the Coral Sea in 1942. Third, the cruiser Juno, which was torpedoed by the Japanese during the Battle of Guadalcanal on November 13, 1942. Among those lost were the five Sullivan brothers from Waterloo, Iowa. And fourth, the USS Helena, which was struck by three torpedoes and sunk on July 6th of 1943 during the Battle of Kula Gulf, was found off the Solomon Islands. The sinking of the Helena was followed by an enormous multi-day rescue effort, and 732 of the 900 crew were ultimately rescued at that time. All those last three were found just in March. And at this rate, Paul Allen probably found a shipwreck between when we recorded this and when the episode came out. He's busy. He's doing a whole lot of looking for some World War II sunken ships. We're going to take a quick sponsor break and then come back with some more unearthing. Now we are going to move on to a collection of repatriations. You may remember last time on Unearthed when we talked about Hobby Lobby trafficking in illegal antiquities. The looted antiquities were repatriated to Iraq on May 2nd of this year. And according to one of the researchers who was able to examine them, they contain things like letters and contracts and legal documents all dating back to between 2100 and 1600 BCE, all from what's now southern Iraq. Last time, we also talked about the repatriation of the remains of three northern Arapaho boys who died at Carlisle Indian School. But when it was time to exhume the bodies, the remains of one child, Little Plume, could not be found. This year, archaeologists for the Army National Military Cemeteries confirmed Little Plume's burial place at Carlisle, and his body was returned to Wyoming in June. Gets me a little teary. Um... The 10,000-year-old remains of a Native American man have been repatriated to the Santa Inez Band of Chumash Indians who have reburied those remains. They had been accidentally unearthed in 2005, and at that point, the National Park Service worked with the Chumash tribe to decide what to do. The tribe agreed to work with the National Park Service to excavate the site in 2005 because it was being threatened with erosion. Basically, if they didn't do something about it, the remains were going to be damaged or lost. After a full scientific study on the remains, they were returned to the tribe in June. In the words of tribal chairman Kenneth Kahn, quote, protecting the final resting place of our ancestors is of paramount importance to the Santa Inez band of Chumash Indians. When our tribe learned of the discovery made by archaeologists on San Miguel Island, we made it a priority to ensure that our ancestor was laid to rest with a proper burial. Thanks to years of cooperation with the National Park Service, we were granted that opportunity. Lastly, Germany returned a mummified, tattooed head of a Maori man that had been acquired by a Cologne museum director more than 100 years ago. They returned that to New Zealand this year. The skull is going to be kept in a museum in New Zealand until its descendants can be found and it can be returned to the correct Maori tribe. And this is part of a huge ongoing effort to have Maori remains and artifacts returned to New Zealand. Another ongoing favorite on the show is exhumations, and we have a couple. Uh, In the ongoing Salvador Dali saga, his exhumed remains were reburied after a paternity test in March, and there is really not much to add to that at this point. I'm hoping we are done disturbing the remains. 
Salvador Dali for a while because that was that dragged on yeah, for quite some I, time. I was at the Dali Museum in St. Petersburg not that long ago, and there was a sense among the docents of like, we are ready for this to be put to rest. Yes. <laughs> The remains of Martha Brown, who was convicted of murder and executed in 1856, were approved for exhumation and reburial in March. Brown was the inspiration for the Thomas Hardy character, Tessa the D'Urbervilles. This decision came after the jail where she was executed was sold, and developers were planning to just build on top of the former graveyard. Did they not watch Poltergeist? Do they not know how this plays out? (laughs) I was shocked that that was the plan at all. Uh, Intervention came in the form of Julian Fellows of Downton Abbey fame, who insisted that all of the people buried there had to be exhumed and reinterred elsewhere. Thank you, Julian Fellows. (laughs) So uh, we often have a collection of things that I just thought were really cool, but they aren't actually related to one another all that well. So we're calling this next bit potpourri, like a Jeopardy category. It's all interesting stuff that just does not have quite as much of a thematic connection. So first up, the oldest known Dutch art has been pulled out of the North Sea. It is an intricately carved bison bone, and it is 13,500 years old. It was actually pulled out of the ocean in 2005, but research detailing its age and significance just came out in February. It is carved all over in a herringbone pattern and probably had a ritual use. Archaeologists from the University of York have found a 10,000-year-old ochre crayon. It's very small, about 22 millimeters long, and an ochre pebble was also found not far away. This crayon is particularly interesting. It's shaped, although it's very small, it is shaped just like a crayon that we would use today with a pointed tip, and the team speculates that it was used to mark or to decorate animal skins. In 2006, archaeologist Greg Hare found a 1,000-year-old barbed arrow point in Yukon sticking out of some melting ice. And this year, radiocarbon dating confirmed the find as one of the oldest examples of copper metallurgy ever found there. It was found in the territory of the Kargos Tagish First Nation. This is an example of early bow and arrow technology from the area. The arrow itself is made from both copper and caribou antler, And if a thousand years old sounds kind of new for bows and arrows, it's because the indigenous hunters of the region were more often using the atlatl or throwing dart for hunting, and it was only about a thousand years ago that they started using bows and arrows instead. A team in Peru has unearthed a set of ceremonial chambers from the pre-Inca Moche people. It is a find they'd been specifically looking for. These chambers were used for important political ceremonies, and they were notable enough to be depicted in Moche ceramics. Apart from the satisfaction of finally finding the actual place that is shown in existing art that people had already unearthed, archaeologists are hoping that the spine will help them determine exactly what happened to these people. One theory is that massive climate change or a weather catastrophe caused the civilization to collapse. In January, officials in China announced that they had finished a 17-year project to restore an ancient dragon bed. This bed is about 2,500 years old, and it is the best-preserved lacquer bed ever unearthed in China. This bed is covered in uh, really intricate lacquer designs, including designs of dragons, which is what it's been named for. It probably belonged to a king during the Warring States period. 
Archaeologists working near Mexico City have found what they believe to be an ancient model of the universe that also connects to an ancient Mesoamerican creation myth. So first, the myth. Sipatli, uh, who was described as a monster with the qualities of a fish and a crocodile, was floating in the primordial water, and his body formed the earth and the sky. In some versions of the story, his body actually splits to do this. And the find in question is believed to be a temple was placed in the middle of a pond in such a way that it formed an image of the universe floating on the surface of the water. This is just incredible to me. The researchers describe it as a miniature model of the universe, which you would see floating there, just as Sipakli would have done. The area around this natural pond is full of springs and streams, and the researchers also believed that flow from these sources had to be carefully controlled to keep that image properly reflected on the surface of the water. This is, as Tracy said, just mind-blowing. Yeah, of all the things (laughs) in this... uh, This is one of the ones that when I read about it, I was like, that's amazing. Yeah, I feel like if you walked into like an exhibit today that was built with modern technology that did this same thing, it would blow your mind. Yeah. And this is before we had all of the tricks of lighting and effects that we have now. Yeah. As of when they released this finding, they had not pinpointed yet exactly when the shrine was built, but the other uh, artifacts around this area date back to between 750 and 1150 CE. And we're going to pause and have a word from one of the great sponsors that keeps this show going, and then we're going to be back with some games. As Holly noted before the break, now we have some games and gaming. Researchers in Slovakia are trying to figure out how to play a 1,600-year-old board game. This particular game was unearthed in the tomb of a prince in 2006 with the board and the pieces all very well preserved. The board has a grid, sort of like a chessboard, and there are also green and white playing pieces that are made out of glass. Researchers think that this is a portable board for a game known as Mercenaries, or the Game of Brigands. There are much larger versions of this board carved into floors of Greek and Roman temples dating back to around the same time. Even though they've concluded that all of these boards are probably just larger or smaller versions of the same game, we don't really know what the rules are yet, and that's what they're trying to figure out. There's no, like, documentation of the rules. There's no little rules handout that's been unearthed anywhere. Um, And descriptions of the game in ancient writings are pretty vague. And speaking of games, uh, researchers at UC Davis have released their work on 2,000 years worth of dice. The highlights. Dice are way more standardized and fair now than they were in the days of the Roman Empire. Roman dice tended to be visibly irregular. Then around 1100, dice started becoming more standardized in terms of how the faces were numbered. At first, using a system where the opposite faces added up to prime numbers. So the one and the two would be opposite, and the three and the four, and the five and the six. And then in 1450, people started using the number system that's more common today, where opposite faces of the cube all add up to seven. And speaking of dice, archaeologists in Norway found a medieval die that contained no one or two. Instead, it has an extra four and an extra five, which the team concluded was probably used for cheating 
and not for a game that for some reason required dice that were numbered three, four, four, five, five, six. <laughs> I mean, it's totally possible to have a game where you need dice that go three, four, four, five, five, six. I have various dice that are numbered weirdly because that's what the game requires, but they think it was just a teeter. Yeah. Archaeologists excavating a fort near Hadrian's Wall found a pair of Roman boxing gloves. They're padded, and they covered just the knuckle part, not the whole hand. But the researchers think the gloves can still fit on a hand. They are both made of leather, and they are packed with natural material. Next, we've got a chunk of medical finds. Starting off, researchers at the Stanford Synchrotron Radiation Light Source, or the SSRL, at the Department of Energy's SLAC National Accelerator Laboratory have been doing an X-ray fluorescence study to try to reveal a previously lost 6th century translation of Galen of Pergamon's on the mixtures and powers of simple drugs. So the text of this book was scraped off of the pages in the 11th century so that the paper could be used for something else. It was replaced with hymns. This was really common because parchment was in short supply, they would need to reuse it, so they would take a book where they were like, we don't need this book anymore, just going to scrape all the words off of it and make a different book. This also reminds me a bit of the papyrus research that we talked about with the mummy cases in part one of this Unearthed in July. This is really, really detailed work. It takes about 10 hours to scan each page of the text, but they are getting a lot of text out of it. On top of just rediscovering a work that was previously believed to be lost, this will also help fill in some details about early medicine. Neurologists have determined that the ancient Inca were skilled surgeons by examining skulls that had been trepanned. Trepanning is drilling a hole into the skull, and in some parts of the world it's been used for not remotely medically sound reasons, but it has also been used to treat head injuries like skull fractures. We do still drill holes into people's skulls for medical reasons today, but today we usually call it a craniotomy and not trepanation. That usually has some more dubious connotations. And it is a thing that I learned was a thing from Star Trek. Thank you. <laughs> I think I learned it was a thing from His Dark Materials, and then there's like a whole trepanation sequence in one of the most recent seasons of uh, Outlander. Yeah, I definitely learned it from Star Trek because there was discussion of how primitive it was. <laughs> uh, this study, though, that we're talking about looked at 59 skulls from the southern coast of Peru. If the borders of the hole on the, in the bone were rough, it meant that the person had died during the procedure or not long after. But if the hole was smooth and healed, that indicated that the person lived long enough uh, for that to happen. It's a pretty typical way of, like, how long did a person live after this bone injury happened? Is it healed or is it not? Number one, the Inca, unsurprisingly, got better at doing this over time. The oldest skulls dated back to 400 BCE, and there was only a 40% survival rate. But between 1000 and 1400 CE, the survival rate was up to 80%. By comparison, during the U.S. Civil War, the survival rate during this procedure was only 50%. Some of these skulls had actually been trepanned multiple times, and in some cases, there was no obvious head injury being treated. The researchers speculated that in those cases, the procedure may have been treating something like chronic headaches or some sort of mental illness. Researchers at McMaster University were studying a mummy that was long believed to have been someone who died of smallpox. 
They sequenced the DNA of the pathogen involved, and they did not find smallpox. They found an ancient strain of the hepatitis B virus. The mummified remains are those of a small child buried in Basilica of St. Domenico Maggiore in Naples, Italy. They thought the child had died of smallpox because the body was covered in a really distinctive rash. The remains also date back to the 16th century, which would have made it one of the earliest examples of smallpox in that particular region. But it turns out the hepatitis B can cause a similar rash in children, and that seems to have been what happened here. Moving on to a more veterinary or animal husbandry angle, back in 1914, workers uncovered a grave near Bonn, Germany. The grave was about 14,000 years old, and it contained the remains of a man, a woman, and two dogs. And it appears that not only were the dogs domesticated, but also that one of them was taken care of while it was sick. Based on the condition of the dog's teeth, researchers concluded that it had canine distemper and that it had contracted distemper at the age of about three to four months old. But this dog lived to be six or seven months old, which meant that it would have been seriously ill for weeks of its life. This contradicts the idea that dogs at this point were considered just to be working animals and that people weren't emotionally attached to them, only considering it worthwhile to feed and care for them if they were able to work. Being nursed through this many weeks of illness while the dog wasn't able to work suggests that it was being treated more like a pet. And we'll end moving on to another subject on another favorite every time we do unearthed, which is unearthed food and drink. First up, archaeologists found a 2,000-year-old bronze kettle containing some liquor in a tomb in western China. The opening of this vessel had been packed with natural fibers, and inside of it, there was still about 300 milliliters of alcohol. A team at the Sandbyborg Ring Fort on the island of Olin, Sweden, found a burned onion while excavating a fireplace. And at first, its condition was so charred that the team thought it was some kind of nut. But analysis at the Swedish History Museum uncovered that it was, in fact, a 1,500-year-old onion. Onions, though, were not really used in Scandinavian cuisine that long ago, but they were used in the Roman Empire, so the team believes that Romans brought this onion with them. That is probably the least sad part of the archaeological work being done at Sandy Borg, which was the site of a medieval massacre. Yeah, a lot of the work is to try to get more of the detail about that massacre because we know the massacre happened, but there's no written documentation of exactly what happened anywhere. So this onion offers one small bit of levity in an otherwise very dour research project. Moving on, carbon-14 dating has revealed that a collection of peach pits that was unearthed in western Japan dates back to between the years 135 and 230. There are thousands of peach pits in this find, and researchers are hoping that it will help them pinpoint the location of the Japanese kingdom of Yamanekoku. It's a kingdom that has been described in ancient texts, but the exact location of where exactly it was is still something of a mystery. Researchers have found Italy's oldest olive oil in a jar from the Bronze Age settlement of Castelluccio in Sicily, and this dates back to about 5,000 years ago. And a team from Lund University has concluded that beer was being brewed in southern Sweden in the Iron Age in the years 400 to 600. This was thanks to finding carbonized remains of some germinated grains that were being used in the malting process. And this is currently the oldest evidence of beer making in that particular area. 
There's also some new research related to Mesopotamian beers. The ongoing conclusion has been that in Mesopotamia, people drank beer out of communal jars, using a bendy straw to actually consume the liquid. But according to a paper titled Revealing Invisible Brews, a new approach to the chemical identification of ancient beer, Mesopotamians used all kinds of vessels to drink a barley beer out of a variety of cups, goblets, and whatnot. And because we always have Utsi news, we'll end with this one. If he had lived longer, Utsi might have died of a heart attack or a stroke based on CT scans that showed plaques around his heart and his carotid artery. Every article that I saw about this when pulling together this installment of Unearth went back to that previous Utsi find that we talked about, about him eating some kind of fatty dried meat that news articles kept describing as bacon, even though it was not made of pork. Uh, they were all like, maybe if Utsi had had better dietary habits, wasn't eating that bacon all the time, he would not have had these plaques in his cardiovascular system. I like that we can even judge poor Utsi's nutritional choices. I know, right? <laughs> uh, that is the wrap for Unearthed in July. Yeah. That's a whole new way of last time that we had Unearthed in July. Um, I We had a whole bunch of things that were related to previous episodes of the show or had been really major news headlines. And, like, that was a whole episode. And this time it was more of a straight-up, like I do it at the end of the year. <laughs> yeah, there's been a lot of stuff. Yeah, I hopefully the the stream of unearthed stuff doesn't suddenly dry up and prevent us from having enough for two parts in December. That would be really sad. I don't think that's going to be a problem. Me neither. Do you have a listener mail this time around? I do. It's from Karen. Karen says, Dear Tracy and Holly, I love your show. I recommend it to all my friends and colleagues. I just listened to the Six Impossible episodes about the evacuation of children because of war or unrest. In the segment about the English children separated from their parents, you mentioned that researchers uncovered years later that many of the children suffered from serious illnesses. It's not at all surprising that so many of them suffered a host of illnesses later in life. Being separated from your parents can be a traumatic event. Despite a widespread belief that children are resilient, and they are when they have strong, positive support systems, adults need to pay careful attention to the traumatic events in the lives of children that can result in years of mental and physical health issues. You might not know about the ACE study, which brought this issue to light in an important way. Back in 1995, the CDC in Kaiser Permanente studied the health records of over 17,000 members who completed confidential surveys regarding their childhood experiences and compared them to their current health histories. To quote from the CDC's website, quote, childhood experiences, both positive and negative, have a tremendous impact on future violence, victimizations, and perpetration, and lifelong health and opportunity. As such, early experiences are an important public health issue. Much of the foundational research in this area has been referred to as adverse childhood experiences, parentheses, ACEs. Given everything happening in our country today, including the efforts to finally reunite children with their parents seeking safety from our unrest in their home countries, more people need to know about ACEs. Maybe then our policies could be more informed and compassionate from the start. Perhaps you could devote a show to this important topic. Keep up the inspiring work. All the best, Karen. Thank you, Karen, for that detail. 
um, the studies that we were talking about in that particular episode were about the children that had been evacuated from Finland. And I did want to clarify that uh, the, the thing that I found to be really unique about that research was that it seemed to be trying to answer the question of was it worth it to evacuate these children? Right. Like, there is research on this thing happened in a person's early life. Here is what the effect seems to have been. But I don't as often see that, uh, like, motivated by, was it worth it to evacuate these children? Which was really what um, struck me about that particular Finnish war children research that I kept finding. Anyway, thank you so much, Karen, for sending us that additional context about all of that. So, if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We are also all over social media at Missed in History. That is our Facebook and our Twitter and our Pinterest and our Instagram. You can come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, where you will find show notes for all the episodes that Holly and I have worked on together. And you will find a searchable archive of all the episodes we have ever done. And you can find and subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts and really wherever else you want to get a podcast. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 